Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by And Soda, a brand new, refreshing, no-nonsense, sugar-free, sweetener-free and gluten-free vodka-based alcoholic beverage. Only 99 calories per can and flavours include Florida Orange, British Raspberry and my personal favourite, Mexican Lime. Serve chilled and enjoy, folks. To find them, search and soda across all social platforms. Go check them out. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Ridney, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to Jet Boot Jack about his early musical influences, record shopping on his lunch break from school in Camden's finest deep freeze records. We chat about some of his early DJ equipment, which included a Technics turntable with a rotary pitch control. He explains the creation of the Jet Boot Jack brand and his new concept, which takes his music live with an all-female band of singers and musicians. His dream gig and tractor players out are absolute belters too. So, let's get into it. Felix Leiter's in the house. The podcast about DJs, what they do, and who they are. Adriel, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me on. No, it's, uh, I've been a big, big fan of your music for a while. So um, those edits and stuff that you make and, you, and your other productions are really great. You, you've got a really, um, I'll describe the background. It's one of the, one of the there's like a lovely guitar um, leaning against the wall. Is that your kind of, is that like a studio space that you have? Uh, yeah, it's my home studio. Um, the guitar you can see, it's a, it's a bass guitar, I play bass guitar. And that's the same bass guitar I've had since I was 11 years old when I first started playing and uh, that's the bass guitar that you'll hear on 90% of, of my productions. So, Amazing. Yeah. And how have you, it seems like I have to ask this recently, how have you, musically, I really, were, I'm, I'm asking, but how have you dealt with lockdown? How's it been for you? Have you found that you've been more or less productive? How have you found lack of gigs? Like, how have you found the last sort of three, four months? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's been a very sort of interesting time. I know it's been very tough for a lot of people, um, and you know, obviously, yes, it's a tough time all around, especially for the industry. Um, obviously, I've been really missing uh, DJing, and it's it's uh, you know, it's, it's it's tough to go so long without something that you're used to doing several times a week. Um, but on the upside it has given me more time to to work in the studio i've been literally busier than i've ever been uh, over lockdown because um i've had a lot of remix work come in um and also a lot of original productions which i'm working on uh, as well as the, the bootlegs um and then i also have another life that i where i'm a, a screenwriter um, and so I've had um, uh, a lot of work going on there as well. So it's been a, it's been a very strange time. I'm sure it's been a strange time for everyone, but particularly I feel because yeah, I've just been so so busy with work, and it's almost kind of felt like if I did have the DJing going on, I really don't know 
how I would have fitted it, fitted it all in. Um, you know, I've had a lot of deadlines to meet and things like that. So it's not been, yeah, like it, it's gutting not to be DJing, but it's uh, it's definitely been hugely productive. Nice, man. It's good to hear some positive stuff. I mean, to be honest, I think maybe maybe I've been fortunate um, in the people that I've spoken to myself, but I think there are there are a lot of positive messages out there, and I think that's important to remember as, as tough as it has been for some people, and I know that. There is a lot of positivity out there. A lot of people have taken the opportunity to do different things, learn new skills, get in the studio. Um, so we'll dive into the podcast as a sort of starting point, which I always like to go down, which is um, what's the first memories of music that you have? So we're talking about whether it's parents, brothers, sisters, is it in a car? Is it just I'm going, I'm taking you way back before DJ and way back before even picking up that guitar at 11 where are the first influences, memories, anything to do with music? Where do they come from in your life? So, yeah, I mean, music was a really big thing for me from when I was very young. And uh, I've got a, a, a lot of um, older brothers uh, and an older sister. And um, it was definitely growing up on their musical tastes, um, which were very much based around the kind of 70s, I would say. They were, uh, I think, kind of in the early 90s, there was a, still a kind of a bit of a hippie um, kind of regeneration. You know, there was a lot of kids who, who were uh, into that sort of scene. So I was actually listening to a lot of things like Hendrix and Led Zepp. Um, but probably what was the biggest... Um, and most important genre that I was listening to um, was reggae and specifically dub reggae, which uh, my older brothers were into. Um, and, you know, obviously the whole Bob Marley thing, which I think kind of all, all kids go through anyway, but I've, I've really, thanks to their sort of depth of, of knowledge, and I should say they're quite a lot older than me, my, my older brothers, um, I was actually listening to to a lot of um, fairly obscure reggae. You know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's quite a, yeah. quite a, it's quite a bespoke entry point to music dub reggae. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. But for me, that's been the foundation for everything because, as I say, specifically dub reggae. Um, so much of what we now call dance music. I know everyone traces dance music back to disco. Um, for me. I think reggae was, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into a whole debate about it, but it, I think it was probably equally as important because that's where the whole sound system culture, the DJ culture, but also the remix culture came from. Um, you know, dub reggae was all about taking, you know, pretty much what, what people are doing now with stems. You know, it was all about you'd have a reggae track and then... Uh, a dozen different producers would, would come and, and make their own dub versions from the from the stems um, and then obviously you'd get um, what we'd now call MCs um, toasting over the top um, they would call them DJs in those days so so much culturally of, of what we accept as DJ culture um, came from that I think you know when you're talking about disco it's more about the the, the rhythms and the beats and the sounds um, but even even then, you know, dub reggae was built on a on a four four beat. Um, it you know it, it was syncopated, so so not quite the same as as disco, but um, still yeah hugely important. And and obviously 
as a bass player, you know, bass was was the most important thing in dub reggae. Bass bass was up front and uh, drove the whole track. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a massive thing for me, and also my first kind of clubbing experiences where uh, my older brothers would take me to. Whoa, to... whoa, whoa, whoa! You're getting way ahead of us. You're getting way. We've got we've got well, loads to go here. <laughs> I was kind of I was kind of 12 years old when I started going out to dub reggae. Wow! So, yeah, it's not, it's <laughs> a massive, massive leap from the bedroom to the to to the club. Um, but amongst all of this. Uh, I know this is a very long answer, but uh, <laughs> so, so these were all the influences that were coming from from outside. But for me, um, I kind of found my own path with um, with house music very early on, very early on, and and kind of talking about sort of hip house era stuff like that. I was kind of into a lot of hip hop, and and the hip house thing kind of crossed over. Um, and I, I think it, it, it all goes back to, um, I mean, I, I, I was listening to the prodigy, you know, pretty early on. Um, but the one thing which really had just this incredibly, I can't, I can't, uh, overestimate how, um, how much it, it affected me was an album called mega bass. Which which uh, would have come out in ninety one maybe. Um, I'm gonna have to check that. Um, but it was one of those ones where you just make a random purchase, uh, probably an R price or Tower Records or something. Bought bought it on cassette, and it was. I remember looking at the cassette. This is you know you're talking about vivid memories. This is really vivid for me, being in this in uh, probably an R price, and um, looking at this cassette and the track listing and it had about 50 60 tracks on it and when you've got your you know you've got your pocket money to spend i was like oh wow fantastic like this is this is such good value for money so i bought it took it home and was really surprised that uh, and i guess initially disappointed that these 50 60 tracks it wasn't it wasn't that you were hearing each track from beginning to end this was a mixtape this was this was the first mixtape I'd ever heard, and not even a mixtape in the way that we would think of it, because it had been made in a studio from the original recordings. I'm guessing from from some of the stems as well, because the way that it's mixed, you've got you know some acapellas, some instrumentals, some bits of tracks, and just flying out of tracks and into tracks, um, almost mashups at some points, def- you know, definitely mashups because, you know, bits where they're acapellas over, over instrumentals. And it just absolutely fascinated me. And it was such, such a key moment in, in my life. And as I say, came very, very early on. Um, and they then put out Megabase 2 and Megabase 3. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of started me on the, on the dance music road. Um, and from there, it was probably then into pirate radio, you know, listening to pirate radio, um, and, and not just pirate radio, also kiss, uh, which at the time was, was, you know, hugely important, um, in, in what it was playing, which was, you know, very different to what it's playing now, but, um, you know, very, very important stuff, um, and important DJs. 
Um, so, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a long answer. We'll we'll pu- I'll pull you back for, for some bits and bobs. There's some interesting there's some interesting stuff in there that I want to pick up on um, sure. because um, it's funny you should say about the the the, the reggae side of things because um, yeah. there's a uh, there's a, a track that we or I would know from childhood it was as a house record, which was uh, now that we found love, which was the heavy D version with the big pianos yeah. and stuff. Um, but the original sample, well, the right, original right. track was the OJs. But after the OJs, the OJs would have released that around like 1973. But after the OJs, it was Third World who did like a reggae version of it. Um, and that was like, that was that was really cool. And like, um, shout out to, uh, if anyone wants to check more out about that, there's a, there's a really great podcast called um, The Study, or The Sample Study which is like two guys that talk about the history of records and the samples and where they came from. But just because you mentioned the um, the reggae thing, I, th- I thought that was really interesting. I just Googled um, I Googled Megabase there, which yeah. is, um, I think it came out in 1990. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's so interesting because it goes from like, even like at the start of the mix, it looks like it goes from kid and play, do this yeah. my way, into yeah. the Jungle Brothers, I'll house you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and there's some, yeah, there's some great stuff in there. There's obviously things that you would, you would, everyone would recognize things like black box right on type. In fact, to be honest, if I went through this, I could probably, there's probably about what's four or five that you've done versions of. Yeah. There's, there's Not only that, that, I should probably say I've done a version of third world now that we found love. Have you? Okay. I'd love to listen to that. But, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, it, it's, um, it was one of those things where, um, it was kind of everything all at once. So I kind of, I, I I learned so much so quickly just from that one album, um, and um, and yeah, as you say, that that's kind of it. It does kind of jump around. Like yeah, now we wouldn't really link Kid and Play and Jungle Brothers and Black Box, but at the time, it it was all it was all dance music. You know, oh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a de- to the detriment of the current scene. To be honest, I mean, I'm I've done you know lots of mashup sets and and lots of party sets, and everything else, and you know, and, and I I love going from from different genres. You know, obviously I do house sets, but at the same time, I think it's amazing to go from you know to go from 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 hip house or from or from hip hop or into into house or trip hop or all these kind of different things. I think it's kind of I think the the scene of which sometimes the more serious side of of house and techno. It sort of frustrates me, which is, you know, it's refreshing to see people like, you know, Dennis Sultra or whatever, kind of going all over the place and changing pitches and mixing records and that kind of like one BPM house or techno set. As as much fun as and as good as it can be, I think is sometimes, yeah, I'd like to see DJs who, who, who play with things and move it around a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, for, for a long, long time, I've been a multi-genre DJ in, in kind of different respects. So I'll kind of, uh, as I've been DJing since I was 13. So as the scenes have changed, I've kind of had to adapt with the scenes. So I've, you know, I've DJed purely in hip hop clubs, purely in garage clubs, purely in house clubs, jungle, you know, breaks, uh, uh, funk, soul, reggae. But then I have also done sets where it's putting all of that into one set. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fun. It's great. I love it. It's, it's a challenge, which which I like as well. Um, but what I'm fi- finding now, um, obviously, I've kind of found my niche here with with disco and disco house. But what I'm really, really excited about is the uh, scope, the the fact that disco is such a broad church that I can play it. I can go and play a disco house set. 
and stay within sort of 118 BPM to, to 128 BPM, but play such a huge variety of stuff. There's there's so you know there's so much um, scope there to to play. You can get away with so much these days. I think yeah. um, if if you want to, and if you're brave enough, and if you've got a crowd who are willing to to go on that journey with you, I think within I think you know within the dance music scene, everything always gets um, fragmented, and you always get these little subgenres of subgenres, and DJs become known. All oh, right, that that DJ plays this specific type of house, or even that specific type of disco, which is something. Yeah. That a lot now where there are DJs who play, you know, only play sort of obscure edits or, uh, you know, some who are, you know, only play the sort of housier side of things. Um, and I just love the fact that I can go from, from yeah, like, like proper obscure 70s disco to something that's almost bordering on Tech House Yeah, uh, within a set. With, not even within a set, within two tunes, you can do that. Yeah, I love, I love that and level of, I love that level of freedom within DJ. It's brilliant. I think it's, and and I can't really think of a time where, um, within the house scene, and not, you know, I'm, cl- I'm lumping disco in with house there, um, where you can actually get away with that. I think that, you know, for so long, you, you've, when you go to a house night, you've you know exactly what you're going to hear you know exactly the type of house music you're going to hear whether it was you know back in the day funky house or you know as i say tech house or whatever but i think now there is that that freedom if you want it uh to really play with it so let's go back to um you starting to dj then so obviously you mentioned it was quite young was it did your older brothers or sisters have did they have turntables or equipment how did you first start to did you, in fact, another sort of caveat to that question is, had you touched um, like decks, DJ equipment before you touched musical equipment or did the musical equipment come first? Right. So uh, the, music, the music theory and uh, practical uh, definitely sort of came first. I was playing classical piano from when I was seven, I think, um, and then on to, you know, various other instruments until I found... Um, uh, bass guitar which kind of then opened everything up for me because uh i was then able to play me to play the sort of music that i was listening to and that before there was this disconnect where you know i was playing class- classical or jazz and i was listening to to rock and funk and and um reggae so once you can actually play what you're listening to then yeah then it all opens up and then also you you can get into that whole thing of jamming and forming bands and stuff which i did and that um, again, it just gives you such a huge. Um, I mean, I don't even know if people really do that anymore. <laughs> if, if you know, if someone, if someone wants to get into production, then chances are they're probably just going to sit down on on Ableton or Logic or whatever. But having that background of actually physically jamming with people with live instruments and 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 gigging and forming bands when you're when you're young, when you're a kid, when you can get away with it, when there's no expectations and it's just fun. I think that's so important and it really instills in you um, so much about music, um, not just not just music theory, but just the way that you look about me, look at music and feel about music. Um, it becomes something much more integral to you. Um, so. So, yeah, that was I, I was definitely sort of going down that route, the, the, the live music route. 
Um, and my brothers would have a turntable, nothing, nothing like a, a DJ turntable, but obviously to play reggae, you know, there was no, no digital music then. So it was, it was all on 45s. Um, so it would be, you know, play a, play a record, take the needle off, flip it over, play it, you know, so there's no mixing or anything. Um, and then I got my first decks, yeah, probably when I was 13, and it was like uh, there were there were odd decks. I can't remember. I can't remember what one was. I think one might have been a, a, um, a belt drive new mark or something like that. And then the other one was a really early Technics that, you, that I've never I've never I, don't, I can't remember where I got it. Probably on loot or whatever it was back in the day, secondhand. Um, I've never seen one of these decks since. It was a it was a, it was a Technics with rotary pitch control. Wow. Um, I can't remember the the, uh, the model number, but I'm sure sure you could find it. But I'm, I'm assuming that that must have been direct drive. Um, so I was really chuffed out of Technics, even though it was you know mixing with rotary pitch control is, is, as your first <laughs> as your first experience of mixing. Yeah, it was pretty pretty tough man but um but then again you know you learn on those you, you learn on belt drives then it sets you up for the rest of your life you know you can can pretty much mix on anything yeah so so yeah i've got the got these decks and it was actually then it was like okay i'm now on my own path separate from my siblings because they they might have gone out to the odd club or rave or whatever but the whole dj thing was completely foreign to them so it was kind of my own thing now um and that was more through my friends. And I had a couple of friends who were on Pirate Radio at the time, sort of older, older friends, maybe maybe my friends, older brothers or cousins or whatever. Um, and I remember one of them was selling a bunch of his records, uh, you know, and, and I was just like, yeah, I snapped them up cheap. And I managed to do that a few times when I was a kid because people used to – used to sort of dip into it. People used to sort of buy a bunch of records and then just be like, ah, oh, you know what, this isn't for me and, and yeah. quit after a year or a few months. And then any time that would happen, I'll just be like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take your collection. And it was such a good way of, of buying records because you'd get them in bulk, you'd get a whole load to go through. Um, it was someone else's taste. So it would, you know, it'd be new things that you maybe wouldn't have purchased yourself. Yeah. Um, so I did that a lot. And um, as well as um, then... I grew up in Camden, so just surrounded by record shops. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I would I would just go to the record shops, you know, three four times a week. Um, going going to sort of ones where uh, other you know sort of bigger DJs would go and shop, and, and it would be nice to hang out. And, and you know, it was a it was a really cool experience going to the record shop in those days. It was basically like a little little bar almost without it's the community. Yeah, we talked about a lot on the podcast. Yeah. But then also the second-hand record shops, which was um, just just crazy in those days. It was crazy, and and it's it's almost impossible to to sort of communicate to people what second-hand record shops were like in those days, um, because they were so focused on things like techno or the sort of commercial house, sort of more northern house, um, or or hip hop. Uh, or rock and pop and garage and jungle and hardcore which were the musics I, I grew up on 
were completely disregarded. And anything that came into the secondhand record shop, I'm talking about specifically in Camden, uh, if people you know remember, it was uh, it, it was record exchange in Camden. Um, anything that came in that was that was garage, park or jungle, got thrown in the one pound bin. And uh, <laughs> I would just, I would just absolutely raid it. And so, yeah, I've built up a, a really, really this, big... Are you still uh, quite young at this point? You're talking like 13, 14, 15? Yeah, 15. I mean, it's, um, if you want to look at it chronologically, it was, uh, when I was 13, it was more hardcore, uh, just going into jungle. When I was 14, 15, it was jungle. And by the time I was sort of 15, 16, 17, then it was garage was, was the was the big thing. I think it's a uh, great point about the record shop thing though, because I mean I remember that I, you know, you get bundles of records, you would you'd buy like you say, you'd buy people's bundles of records, you'd even buy sort of bundles of boxes of records from secondhand shops and things. And thinking about now how about how you go about acquiring music as a DJ, or even to an extent as a collector, <clears throat> like you don't get that same thing because you don't accidentally get a box of mp3s or something do you know what i mean like you know i know there's bulk ways of downloading stuff or whatever but it's that thing of of finding records within you know someone else's collection and i really love that point you made about you buy someone's book collection because you maybe know that they've got you know however many 20 you might like 20 30 percent of them or you know 20 30 percent but the stuff you discover going through the other it opens up your mind and sends you down different like little wormholes and yeah I think it's uh I think it's definitely a, a shame like I say a lot on the podcast it's not I'm not one of those people that says good old days were great and the, the you know the future's rubbish I don't believe that but there is definitely something lacking in that going into a secondhand shop or something and buying a crate of music and just having this discovery sitting on the floor listening to things yeah I mean it's it's as you say it's not I, I'm, I'm exactly the same I don't think that it's about uh what's what's better than you know it was good then and it's bad now you know things change and you have to move with, with the things that change but i do think it is a really i can't think of any other word for it it's very sad yeah to think that um no one of the next generation or any of the generations to come will ever have that experience of yeah. of knowing what the record shop culture was like and just the, 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 this thing which is so, so foreign now, which is that you would listen to pirate radio, you'd maybe hear a song that you liked, and I say song, hear a, hear a tune that you liked, and then you would have to fi- try and find some way of finding out what that song was, what yeah. that tune was. And, you know, chances are the MC, you know, if there was an MC, they're not gonna say what the tune is. <laughs> Um, you you might be able to you know if you manage to record it on tape you might be able to take that to the record shop and play it to the person behind the counter and they might be able to help you but 90% of the time it was well for me anyway it was literally about having this list of of songs that I'd heard in my head which maybe had some tiny little vague lyrics in them you know specifically yeah. talking about something like garage or something it might be like one little phrase in there and then you just be looking through the second hand shop and you see something and the title of the track was that phrase or whatever. And you would just be like, oh, I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's the song. And, and again, you would, in, in these secondhand record shops, you wouldn't be able to listen to them. They banned people from listening to the songs because you'd just be there all day. So you, you, it was just either you buy it or you don't. So you just have to take that risk and buy it, take it home 
And that moment where you put the needle on that tune and it was the tune that you were looking for, again, that that feeling is something that no one will ever have again. Yeah, that's a really sobering thought. I love that thing, though, because I have a great like memory. As soon as you said it, there's um, I remember being on a dance floor in a club when we were younger, and we were dancing around, and like this song was on, and we all loved it. And it was like, we were like, there's, there's bees all over my body. There's bees all over my body. What is this tune? And I remember like being in the, the record shop the next Saturday and my mates going, be- what's that bees all over my body tune? And this guy was like, what? He's like, bees, bees all over my body. And the guy was like, hang on a minute. And he came back and he pulled out this like record, put it on. And uh, and it was like, that's it. That's the one. And he was like, this beat, this beat is all over my body. It's like super chumbo record. But it's like, there was no Shazam. There was no, you know, obviously it's in a club, so no one's announcing it. But like, you're just having that little, that little hook in your head of a bit of vocal and then trying to find it. And like, but yeah, the world without the internet, the world without Shazam, like finding these tracks and then how to track them down and, and get them. And then, you know, and then also the frustration of, being in a record shop and going through all these records and then some guy would come in who you might you may or may not recognise and the guy behind the counter would pull out loads of stuff for them and you'd be like, Whoa, what's I wanna see that stuff and they're like, No, 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 that's just for that's just for him or that's just for that guy. Cause there was, you know, there was limited copies of it and, you know, it was hard to get hold of. Um yeah. well, I was I was I know exactly what you're talking about. I was very lucky in that regard because um I had a very, very good record shop right next to my school. And I used to go there pretty much every day at, at lunchtime. You know, that's where I spend my school lunches. Amazing. And uh, and because I was in there so so much and got to know them so well, I was one of the people that they would put the thing behind the counter for. So it would be like literally they'd have five copies of a record, and it'd be like right, this one's for Norris the Boss Windross. This one's for <laughs> you know, and then, and then there'd be one with my name written on it, and I'd be like, oh, brilliant! Like, and uh, what was the name of that shop? Uh, that was called Deep Freeze Records. Deep Freeze. Which uh, was on Camden Road, uh, run by a great guy called Andy Lewis, um, who, uh, yes, uh, great sort of, uh, did, did a couple of productions. But, um, yeah, amazing shop and amazing time. And it actually had it had two rooms, this record shop. One was Jungle and one was Garage. And uh, I would just go between the two rooms. I'd spend, spend sort of time in both rooms and, and pick up whatever they had there. But something which um, will probably seem absolutely crazy to people now is that I used to, you know, as I said, I used to go there, go go there at lunch uh, from school and sort of come back, you know, with with some some records in a bag, or whatever. And I would get teased at school for for buying records. You know, it 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 was not a cool thing at all. Being a DJ, buying records was not cool. It was not such a it was nerdy, and um, that's such a foreign concept for people now. Yeah. But, um, we, you know, we're not talking about that long ago. No. Um, but, it, yeah, it was it was a real sort of quirky thing that that not many people did and definitely not many people took particularly seriously. And, you know, again, it goes back to all the, as I say, all the garage and jungle and everything being thrown in one pound bin. There, there was no concept of the fact that um, that this is important, this is you know, worthy. Um, I definitely had that concept. I completely understood that, you know, a lot of people, look, you know, when, when they're not being nostalgic and they look back and they're like, oh, I never knew it was like such a, such an amazing time. I was totally aware every minute that this was an incredible thing that, that I was living through. 
And, so well, and, how did you go about getting your first gigs then? So you're buying all these records, collecting all this music when at a super young age in, in comparison to most people. How, where did you, what are your memories of like getting your first gig? What were you doing? What were those gigs that you first got to play this music you were collecting to, to people? Sure. So it was, it was pretty much just um, at, the, at the very beginning, it was just um, friends parties, you know, yeah. birthday parties and things like that. And um, what's, what's really nice about, about Camden where I grew up, it's, it's a very, very mixed area in terms of uh, ethnicity, in terms of um, wealth. Um, you know, it's got the highest, highest disparity between rich and poor in the country. Um, so you meet all sorts of people, you become friends with all sorts of people. So there were kids who, who could afford to, to throw uh, really nice, um, you know, nothing by today's standards, but, you know, hire out a bar, even though, you know, I'm talking about sort of 15 year olds or whatever, you know, there was, there was, uh, people really didn't care about sort of the whole underage thing at that point. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, pe- people would sort of hire out bars or spaces and put on little little birthday parties or whatever they were. And yeah, I'd, I'd get to DJ, and, and that was great. And uh, I think the f- it might have been my first ever gig was at a bar in Camden, and the birthday boy um, hired uh, Ray Keith and MCGQ. Um, it's jung- jungle um, days, and so I my probably my first ever gig. I opened for Ray Keith, and I had MCGQ MC and over me. So it was just <laughs> just amazing, amazing, and. Uh, um, and from there, um, I guess it was just just perseverance. You know, there was a it was a, a huge bar culture in Camden. You know, Camden's where where bar vinyl was a place called Bar Vinyl, which was where DJ bars were, were born. You know, it's the first first DJ bars. Um, so there were there was work there, um, but then also people around me would sort of start just starting to become get into promotions, you know, starting to promote things, promote events. Um, and so I kind of got involved with that as well. And then also pirate radio, I managed to get on pirate radio pretty, pretty early on. Um, so yeah, there was, there was work there. Um, it wasn't, um, it wasn't massive. It was more sort of smaller venues and stuff, but, um, it was all experience. So yeah. When did you, um, cause you had this, because you have this classical background or this classical training uh, in music, when at what point did you start to put that into play as far as production on the dance music side of things? Um, so it it was always very important to me to to have an element of musicality uh, in what I was doing. Um, I I. I think even from the first things I was making, they were all, they were generally sample based. Uh, I was working with samples, but I would always want to add something on top. I would always want to just, just play around with, um, you know, uh, with uh, pianos or strings or, or whatever it was and just try and bring something, something original to it. Um, which is kind of carried on now, you know, whenever I, um, even, you know, making bootlegs and things like that. I'm, all, I'm always sort of trying to not not just use the stems that are there, but try and create new elements to, to put in there. Um, yeah, I feel it's, um, I, I don't know, it was just, it, it's, it's almost 
it's almost a bit of insecurity where I'm, I'm very aware that you can grab a sample, stick a beat under it and make a tune. Um, but it didn't feel like I was satisfying myself musically in doing that. Um, so I always felt like I needed to, to um, do a bit more, whether it was kind of juxtaposing samples, uh, you know, taking one sample from one place, another from another and, and putting them together. Or as I say, just, just playing, playing things over the top. But, um, but yeah, it's always, it, it always goes back to, to music theory, I think. What did you start to use? I guess, like, what, um, what sort of software did you start to use? How early did you start to use it? Was it something that yeah. came a bit later? Or? No, I mean, it was, it was pretty early, probably late, late 90s, mid, mid, mid to late 90s. And so, I mean, all, all, there was no, wasn't really anything. You know, you, you just had to use an Akai sampler and an old Atari and, um, uh, you know, Roland um, synthesizer and, and uh, yeah. And again, if you, you know, if you've, if you've made sample based tracks with an Akai, you can kind of use anything, you know what I mean? Once you've learned on that with floppy disks and everything. What's your production? um, What is your software of choice sort of these days recently? Sure. So um, I'll, went through a lot of different things i went through obviously q <laughs> sorry it's my dog q um, base um uh was a big thing when it came out and then reason came out which was loads of fun um and then logic uh was a huge step you know going from q base and, and reason into logic logic just felt so much more like a professional uh work station and um i've stuck with logic since Cool. Tell us a little bit about where Jet Boot Jack came from as far as a brand name. Tell us a little bit about when it came about and what the thought process was when you first started doing it. Sure. So, uh, so yeah, I was making stuff, um, just kind of started sort of making stuff, just mucking about. And then I started actually working with rappers and doing a bit of hip hop beats and stuff like that, which was, which was really good, good fun. Uh, and then I got into making some house music and, um, put out a bunch of vinyls and, uh, that all went very well. And then everything went digital and the bottom fell out of the vinyl market. And it was kind of like, okay, you know, have to have a complete rethink of, of this now. Um, and the whole time I was still DJing and, I just I was making a lot of um, bootleg remixes and re-edits um, just for my own sets, just just yeah. to play out myself. Um, and for a long, long time, I was very precious about them. I was like, "These are mine. I'm keeping them for me when I DJ. You know, these, I'm the only one who's going to be able to play these things out. It's kind of my selling point. People knew that when they booked me that they would hear things that you know mixes that other DJs." wouldn't have uh and then one day i was just like you know what i'm just gonna start putting them online and giving them away for free um and i created this jet boot jack thing as because i was very aware that what i was doing was making bootlegs and i wanted to keep it separate from the the other stuff i was doing which which was more um production based but kind of because 
it was still and it still is now kind of the whole copyright thing was 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 a very you know real gray area i think it's probably even more of a gray area now but i really didn't know look if i put this bootleg out are they going to come after me you know so when i first did the jet jack thing it was almost like creating like a like a secret identity and alter ego I, I, when i put this stuff online i I didn't use any photos of myself. I didn't put, you know, any information, didn't have my net, my real name on it or anything. And it just became, it, it kind of took off. It just, you know, they, they, they started to become very popular very quickly. And it got to the, to the point where I was like, you know what, I, I need to kind of own this and, and uh, just, just, kind of put that fear aside and and uh, just embrace it. So then, you know, I started putting my photos on there and, and linking it to my other, my other personal accounts and things like that. Um, and then kind of came up with this idea that I was going to post one, one piece of content every week, every Tuesday, whether it's wow. a, a bootleg remix, a DJ mix, an official release, an original track. I'm going to put something out once a week. And this was probably about two or three years ago now, I think. Um, and yeah, I've kept that up ever, ever since. And um, I think, you know, a lot of people sort of uh, kind of asked me a, a lot, you know, how have you got so many followers on SoundCloud? And, and the answer is, it's just content. You just, you know, if, if, you, if you can maintain a steady stream of content um then pe people will uh buy into that you know people respect it and and uh, want to be a part of that did you find that that um did you find that that content got you more gigs did you find it got you paid better for the gigs you were already doing did it make did it get you gigs further afield or did it sort of did it not have a or did you know was there a correlation between that content that potentially producers other djs were using did that have a correlation with getting you more gigs um it were for for a long time it was kind of like there were these again there were these like sort of separate identities where i was i was doing the whole jet jack thing online and then when I'd go and DJ in the clubs, a lot of what I was playing was very different. I was doing a lot of multi-genre sets and, and things like that. Um, or, as I say, just being asked to do a set of a specific genre, which was very far removed from, from what I was putting online. So there was a real disconnect for, for a long time. Um, and I'd say it's only really recently where the two things have started to connect and my DJ work has started to reflect uh what i'm doing online um it's it's a very it's a very tough world the, the dj world and you know it's only going to get tougher with, with what's going on now um and it's just so so competitive and um you know there's kind of probably less than one percent djs who, who get 99 percent of the work yeah um, so i was very much what i would call a jobbing dj where i was just taking whatever work i could get and and um you know um playing whatever uh, i had to play but always doing my best to maintain this element of uh integrity where you know if, if i was playing in front of a crowd who wanted to to hear um just hits well i would give them hits remixed in a way that they they'd not heard before and in a set where i'd mix it in a way where you know i was 
doing it in in a in more of a club DJ style. And um, what I would say about that whole thing is you learn so much. You learn so much from from playing. You know, it's it's that whole um, ten thousand hours thing that you know if when you've been when you DJ for thousands and thousands of hours in front of you know hundreds of different types of um, audiences, you just learn. You learn so much, so much, and um, it can kind of then uh, deal with anything that gets thrown at you. Um, and and as I say, that's kind of why I've why I've always kind of uh, geared myself towards a more being as eclectic as eclectic as I can within the boundaries. So if I'm going to play a disco house set, it's going to be an eclectic disco house set. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also like really kind of identify with with what you said about the private edits thing a while ago because it's it's something that. I've always thought a lot about it. and that thing where you go, oh, I want to make these because the world we live in now, like the, the musical landscape of which we live in, like, you know, if, if I make an edit of something that I'm going to play in my sets and that's, that's great. And, and, I, and I know that you said, you know, back in the day, there was a point where people knew that they booked you and they got all this sort of exclusive kind of music that, that, that you'd made for yourself. And it's really nice to have those little private edits. And it's something that I've done in the past as well. But also you then kind of go the vast majority of people in the crowd care so little like about who has made what and, and 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 who gets credit for who's done what they're just and that's and it's not a criticism by the way they're just living in the moment like so you know so it's like okay so i've made this this record that when i play it it seems to make everyone happy but i'm the only person that's got it sort of seems like a little bit of a waste really like because ultimately you know other people could be playing it all over the world and I'm sure you've had this I'm 100% sure you've had this where you get people messaging you or sending you videos or whatever going oh I was in I was in Ibiza I was in Barbados I was in California and like your record came on and like yeah it's maybe it's our bootleg or something or whatever but there's a couple of ones that I've done over the years probably a lot of people know me for the, the Daft Punk one more time thing that I did and I still get messages now, like, I mean, I would have had them this summer. Oh, I'm sat in Mambo and things just come on and, like, can't believe it. And, like, obviously I'm fully aware that, you know, Daft Punk created that record and mine's just a bootleg. But the happiness that that's bringing, um, and I understand really, I really resonated with that when you said that about the difference between having these private collection of things which stand you out as a DJ. But I think the way that the world's, the musical world and the DJ world's changed is that, they now become the, the tools of your trade in the sense of in the past, we might have used DJ mixtapes to get gigs. Whereas I think now, weirdly, we probably get gigs by the edits and the bootlegs that we make rather than the, than, than the, the mixtapes, which is silly because you're going to DJ, you're not going to produce. But it seems that that's the way that the industry has moved recently. So I, I did really, did really resonate with that. Um, how are yeah, you? No, no, I was just going to ask you how you found the difference between, and this is like a, a kind of a guess a geeky, very personal question from where I've been as well with things. So how do you find that that move from creating something which is which is a bootleg or an edit or a mashup or however we want to term it, which is basically, you know, we, we all do it sampling and creating other people's content and then making a version of it in our own image in, in a sense. 
How have you found the move to creating things that are brand new and in a ver- for want of a better term, originals? I'm sure you have used samples or whatever. I'm just interested from, from my point of view, and I'm sure a lot of people listening who, who are producers, how have you found that move from instead of potentially loading up like, you know, a Madonna track into the top of the door and working on it to opening up a blank door and creating something new? How, 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 how does your mindset work with that? Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would probably say, even though, as I said, the early stuff that I was doing was the majority of it was sample based. I still felt like I had, um, already done that whole original music thing, partly because I, as I said, I'd been in bands, you know, who, who had original music and, you know, I was part of that. Um, but also I, I you know, I, I'm sure I've mucked around a lot with, um, with just making original tracks. So it, it was, I would say probably for me mentally, the whole sample thing came was, was secondary to the, to the original stuff. Um, so it was more kind of getting my head around the fact kind of already spoken about that actually you, you are allowed to let the sample do the work that you don't have to, um, add a million things to it. Um, and you know, it's all about that balance really. Um, so it's, it's a great question, but it's not so much a question that really um, that I can really get into in much depth because it's. I think when you've come from that musical background, um, it's yeah, it's 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 always in you. It's always in you. It's not. I'm I'm never scared by a blank. Yeah, it Logic sounds like you might, it sounds more like you went from creating original music to doing some work with bootlegs, as opposed to, but which is more what I did, which was starting with bootlegs and edits because I don't have any classical musical sure. background. So yeah. the way that I first learned was by loading in tracks, cutting them up. Whereas yeah. you realistically came from a, a, a musically trained background and just manipulated stuff in, in yeah. the future. Talk to well, me about one of the pi- sorry, where I'm at now is I'm really trying to find that middle ground where uh, where it's it's a bit of both. And you know, if you if you listen to some of the bootlegs I make, maybe like Blondie Heart of Glass, you know, a million people have done it. So I was like, right, what can I do different? So I put a whole new horn arrangement on it, which you know was, was never there in the original. So it's you know it's something like that where it's like, right, well, how can how can I take this somewhere else uh, and put and put my own stamp on it, as you say? Um, and uh, but but what's what's really nice now is the original, um, sorry, the official remix work that I'm getting. You know, I think that is uh, I'm really enjoying that because then it's often you're only working for vocal, you know, someone sends you a vocal and you build something around it. And I love that. I love having a starting point, you know, uh, that, that I can then work from. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's, there's, there's, we we could talk for hours about these, even these tiny little niche parts within the, within what we're talking about. But it's interesting, yeah, that the idea of getting of getting stems is super exciting. You know, if you've been if you've been chopping up tracks, um, you know, to get stems um, is super interesting and super exciting. And, and there's a lot of different sides to it um, as far as that goes. Talk to me about the like the the Jet boot jack live band this is a picture sure. that you've got on your um on your, uh, yeah that looks i'd like to come and see it <laughs> tell me yeah. tell me about it well, we'd like to have the opportunity to play yeah um, so yeah this is something that i've been thinking about for a long time it was it was kind of bubbling away in the background for a long time and um 
was never 100 percent sure how it was going to work how i was going to do it um and then uh started working with a fantastic vocalist called haifa um who also runs her own um um, artist agency management, management agency you know for, for for other musicians live musicians yeah um and i kind of put the idea to her she really loved the idea um and uh it, it was it was something I, I i really wanted to do and i started putting it together and as i was putting it together i then before we'd kind of really done it um i pitched it to uh, this manager, um, Adam, at, at Coalition Agency, um, who rep a lot of, um, they got a lot of close ties with Ministry of Sound and they, they rep a lot of the um, Radio 1 DJs, Radio 2 DJs. Um, and he absolutely loved the idea. Um, so that kind of gave it the springboard, the push, because he was like, look, if you put this together, then I can get you bookings. Um, so that gave us gave, gave me the real push, and so put this band together, which is uh, it's vocalist Haifa, another vocalist called Tess, um, and uh, a sax player and a guitar player. The guitar player also does percussion. Um, all female, um, fantastic musicians. Um, and what I did was uh, go back into a load of my bootlegs. Um, because it's uh, vocals, guitar, uh, and sax, I would then pull the vocals, the guitar, the sax off my bootleg remix, and what you're left with is is a really, really strong backing track. Yeah. Um, and then it's just about sort of taking those backing tracks, mixing them into each other, you know, um, and sometimes it'd be mashups as well, um, and putting together this live show where it's um, all the the bootlegs that people, uh, uh, you know, kind of know me for, but in a way that you won't have heard them before, in a much more dynamic way, a much more uh, interactive way. Um, and because I've got such a huge backlog of them now, it's probably about 200 yeah. or something, um, we can, you know, we can do a different set every night, you know, we, and, and every time I make a new bootleg, it's like, right, we'll add that to the, to the, to the roster. Like it's, um, so it's, yeah, it's really, really exciting. Unfortunately, as soon as we got started, it, you know, coronavirus kicked in and um, that was kind of that for the moment. Um, so we, did, you we do had, any, did you do any live, did you do any gigs? Uh, we didn't even manage to, to get our first gig in, but, no. we, but we have done a, a promo video. We did a promo video just before lockdown, Yeah, um, which is online. Everyone can go and check it out. Yeah, I've seen cool. it. Google, yeah, Jet Project Live. Uh, and that gives a kind of idea of what we're doing. Um, but I think, thing, you know, what I'm doing has kind of moved on so much, even just in the last few months, that now, you know, I would, I would approach it in a completely different way. You know, the, the set list would be very different. And, um, but, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it was very, very exciting putting it together and then very, very sad having to then sort of put it back in the box. Um, so we, you know, we'd love to, to get out there and, and, uh, get some bookings, but we'll, we'll have to see how that goes and, uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to do that soon. Okay, man. Well, um, we're gonna, um, start to wrap up. Don't worry, there's plenty to come. 
So <laughs> my first question um, towards the end of the set is I'm going to I'm going to get you to kind of curate a dream gig. Um, basically, I'm going to ask you for a venue. So um, it can be like you can actually name somewhere like a you know specific club or festival or whatever that you've played or that you've been to or you like, or it can be a more generic thing like a, you know a small underground 200 cap, cap room or a you know massive stage 40,000 people but I'd like a venue that this this gig's going to take place um I would like three acts um they're not so much a headliner or a warm-up or anything it's just sort of three sort of you know three acts that are almost similar billing um they can be a DJ it can be a band it can be you it can be you and someone else it can be the the live band it can be anything you want it's and it's just in the moment now it could have been different if I asked you yesterday different if I asked you tomorrow but just something that and obviously the lockdown thing has, a, has an effect on people's mental sort of way of thinking about this as well. But it's basically just a, a sort of a, a dream gig that you'd either like to be part of and, and perform or a dream gig that you'd like to go to. Um, so what's what sort of venues is going to take place in, sir? Um, well, oh, man. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, there, there's two really different sides to this, which is, yeah, is, is, it, is it me as a DJ or is it me as a, a clubber? Because I, I still... Well, not at the moment, but generally I do go clubbing quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I think it's very, very important um, specifically for, for DJs uh, to still go out clubbing. As a as a clubber, my favourite venue is DC10 in uh, Ibiza, which I just absolutely love. I, I love the uh, outdoor space early on. Whenever we go, we, we go early and, and we get the whole full day experience of, uh, of, of listening to you know the music outside and then you go in when it gets uh, usually about midnight and uh, you know it's pretty full on. So as a clubber, that's definitely my my favourite venue. I've never played there. I would absolutely love to play there. Um, in terms of DJs, my favourite DJ ever is Norman Jay. Um, he's had such a huge influence on me. He's probably the reason why I first got into multi-genre DJing. That was the first time I'd ever heard a multi-genre DJ. It was obviously at, at Good Times Carnival. Um, and, and, you know, if we're talking about venues, I don't think there's a better venue. You know, even Tops DC10 is is that old spot that, that Norman Jay used to have, which, um, you know, is, is not, not there anymore. Um, but that's the best dance floor in the world, I think. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Norman... Norman huge huge influence on me i've been very fortunate i've managed to um dj with him twice uh, and he's uh, played uh, one of my productions uh, on his radio when he had a bbc radio show that was a massive thing for me um uh, at the moment my one of my favorite djs out there is is the cube guys uh italian djs um who have you know Kind of much more on the maybe techier side of things, but I just absolutely love what they're doing in terms of production and um, and DJing. Um, very bass driven uh, and just fun. You know, the most important thing for me, and again, this goes back to Norman, is fun. You know, I think people forget often that it's the entertainment industry that we're here you know, for entertainment, people often take it a bit too seriously, I think. And um, I, I feel that fun is just so, so important. Um, 
And then maybe as a third DJ, I'd maybe say uh, Point G, DJ Gregory. Um, he, you know, he's, he's now sort of relaunched himself as Point G. Um, saw him DJ in DC10, and it was one of those sort of spiritual moments that, that you get um, very rarely. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I hope, I hope that answers the question. Um, oh, I love that answer, Sarah. That was fantastic. <laughs> I think that was one of my favourite answers ever on the podcast, yeah. to be honest. But um, maybe, maybe a little bit odd for people, considering that I'm, like, known for disco. Um, but it's, you know, obviously Norman Norman plays a, plays a hell of a lot of disco. But, um, yeah, I, if I'm going out clubbing, chances are I want to hear something a bit, bit tougher <laughs> no, i really love that answer if people want to find out i mean i'm sure people have, have, have heard your name especially people who listen to this podcast because it's you know mainly djs but so, if people want to find out more about you more about your productions just hit us with some like um general things just to, to, to um, search or links or whatever you want to like push out there sure well i mean the the main thing for me is soundcloud it's just been such a strong uh, base for me um, 55,000 followers on there now. Um, unfortunately, because most of what I do is bootlegs, Spotify don't carry a lot of my work, so you're not going to find a great deal on there. You'll find all the new official remixes I've done. Um, but yes, it's, it's really got to be all about SoundCloud at the moment. I'm a, uh, you know, So uh, yeah, that, that's a kind of a one-stop shop, really. Cool. And if um, what I want to do is you're going to pick a track to play out the um, the podcast. I'll do it in in post. But if you, um, it can be anything. It can be one of yours. It can be an official one, an unofficial one. It can doesn't have to be one of your records. It's just a song again in the moment right now that you think people would like to to hear as we after this chat. Um, so if you introduce the track and explain why um, you've chosen it, uh, that would be great. Wow, oh, you've, you've, I didn't know this was coming, so you've kind of sprung this on me. Uh, if I had some time to think, I probably would, would pick out some obscure, amazing record that I love. Um, but as you're springing it on me, I'll, I'll just pick one of mine. So <laughs> um, this bootleg remix, which I did um, a few months ago, is uh, my mix of Diana Ross, I Will Survive, which... Um, Obviously, everyone knows the Gloria Gaynor version. The Diana Ross version is much more of a kind of um, 80s electro type thing. But I took her vocal and put it over more of the sort of Gloria Gaynor style original uh, instrumentation. It was a big, big turning point for me, I think, this remix. Um, It just felt a lot more maybe mature and polished than, than... uh, some of the stuff that came before and it's kind of swung me in a different direction but also it's a great memory there that um, the first time I played it out and uh, this was before I put it online or anything so literally no one had heard it and I played it at a fantastic event uh, called the Pineapple uh, Club which uh, run by Charlie Magri um, and uh, literally the first time I'd ever played it in front of a crowd and to see the reaction, to see everyone singing along, uh, you can't beat that feeling. You can't beat that feeling of um, you know something that you've made yourself, that you've only ever played in your studio, and then to play it in front of hundreds, maybe over a thousand people, and, and have them all sing along. Yeah, that's that's a moment. 
And that is a great record to finish the show with. Thank you very much. So it's been delightful to chat to you. Um, hope to catch up with you again soon. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.